Hi. So this is a lecture on tragedy. Tragedy is a form of drama, as we know. It comes from the Greek word tragos, which means goat, and oid, which means song. So literally, goat song. A tragedy is a dramatic poem or play in formal language, and in most cases has a tragic or unhappy ending. Note that I stress here, it's a dramatic poem or play. I think this meaning has changed over the years, especially since tragedy was codified as a form of drama. But it's very central to think of it both as a poem or a play, because it can function in both ways and often at the same time. Also that it is a song. It is a goat song. Um, and by that I mean that in, if we're going to go back to the Greek uh, meaning of the word tragos, oid, then it has to do with the fact that the plays were spoke sung. So those ancient Greek tragedies like Oedipus and its variants, Iphigenia, Medea, and so forth, were spoke sung texts. If you've ever seen a production at the National Theatre of Greece, especially in their Epidaurus Festival, uh, if you've ever gotten that chance, extraordinary uh, amphitheater, the, the spoke-sung approach to playing the trage tragedies is still very much alive as a form of acting. And it's very illuminating to see the plays in that context, especially what some people call the extant tragedies that we still have with us historically from that time, Oedipus, Medea, and so forth. The Bacchae, goat song. So the more you think about the sacrificial element in tragedy, the better, right? The idea of sacrificing the goat, metaphorically, and tragedies often sacrifices at the center of the story. It's also, as we know, at the center of theater uh, in a very foundational way. Thespis, as we also know, according to ancient tradition, was the first actor in Greek drama. Often called the inventor of tragedy. From that word, we have the word thespian, which then becomes the word actor. Thespis was recorded as the first to stage a tragedy in Dionysus in 534 BC. Thespis was a Greek poet. The Elizabethan dramatists uh, looked at tragedy, I'm just going to jump forward historically for just a second, uh, found Seneca's themes of bloodthirsty revenge uh, more to their liking. Uh, so the first English tragedy was in 1561 by Thomas Sackville and Thomas Norton. And it's basically a chain of slaughter and revenge written in direct imitation of Seneca. So Seneca was a Roman dramatist, um, 
And there's a whole strand of writing that is the Senecan tragedy, which differs from the Greek tragedy. Um, the slaughter and revenge style that you'll find in Gorbaduk, which is the 1561 play by Thomas Sackville and Thomas Norton, uh, you'll find basically it's still quite alive today. So Game of Thrones <laughs> is very much a Senecan tragedy in the way it's constructed. Um, and I'll go into that in just a second, just to, to kind of give you some context. Um, so the Senecan tragedy from Seneca, the philosopher, the fifth century AD, um, wrote closet dramas. So what are closet dramas? There are plays that are intended to be read rather than performed. They were written in blank verse, uh, and they were rediscovered in the mid-16th century um, by Italian uh, scholars. And those sort of closet dramas by Seneca became the model for the revival of tragedy on the Renaissance stage. And two traditions come out of that, the French neoclassical tragedy and the Elizabethan tragedy both of them drawing from Seneca. Seneca's plays were reworkings of Euripides' dramas, for the most part, and also of Aeschylus and Sophocles. So you're getting this, uh, the tradition of adaptation is already starting uh, in this time period. Seneca's plays were probably meant to be recited at, I would guess, court gatherings or some sort of elite gathering. Uh, and they're very declamatory. They're emphasizing narrative um, rather than dramatization of scenes. They uh, have a bombastic kind of rhetoric. And they tend to detail very horrible accounts, um, you know, violence, accounts of violence. And they contain very long soliloquies. In Seneca's tragedies, the gods rarely appear, right? So the, in Greek tragedies, the relationship to the gods is very strong. But in the Roman tragedies, again, seen through Seneca's lens, are uh, the gods are, are kind of not, not as important. What are important in the Seneca tragedies are ghosts and witches. So fast forward to Shakespeare and you see in the Scottish play, for instance, um, and in others, this, the emphasis on ghosts and witches is coming from Seneca. So I'm just going to go back in case that wasn't clear. Um, this, in Seneca's tragedies, the emphasis is on ghosts and witches and not on the gods as there are in the Greek uh, tragic plays. Uh, one of the reasons for this is that when Seneca was... Um, writing, the Greek original tragedies were not known. Uh, they hadn't reached the shores of Rome um, yet. And so what Seneca was doing was pretty reading about them, but actually not looking at the origin of those, uh, looking at, for example, at Oedipus or Medea or the Bacchae. Um, and, so, and so Seneca put his own spin. And then what happened is that people who read Seneca's tragedies kind of took that as a root of tragedy. Um, the French tragic tradition, 
a little bit different. So the French neoclassical dramatic tradition, which reached its height in the 17th century, also drawing on Seneca, but the foremost interpreters were Pierre Corneille and Jean Racine, right? Uh, you might know Racine, uh, maybe, because his Phaedra um, uh, is considered like the most beautiful version of Phaedra ever written. Uh, he was an extraordinary poet, uh, Racine, R-A-C-I-N-E, if you don't know. Um, and uh, this neoclassical tradition adopted uh, Seneca's um, innovation of creating a confidant character. So in the Greek plays, so I'm just going to go back for a second, in the Greek plays, the tragic plays, there isn't a confidant. You know, the, the heroes and heroines of those plays and anti-heroines um, don't have like a foil, really. Um, but Seneca devises, creates a foil. And that foil usually is someone of lower station. So this is where you get the sort of master-servant relationship and tragedy comes from Seneca. The, the master, and I'm just using this as someone in power and status and higher class, the servant, usually somebody working for them <laughs> um, in their employee, uh, becomes the confidant uh, of the master character in the Senecan tragedies. Seneca emphasizes speech over action. So the idea of beautiful language, uh, rhetorical flourishes, but less on what happens next, right? Um, and so the French neoclassicists adopted that part, that area uh, from the Senecan form, the confidant and the substitution of speech for action. The Elizabethans, as we know, because we tend to be more familiar with them because Shakespeare and Marlowe and so many of the others have been done so much over history is that the Elizabethan dramas, dramatists, excuse me, loved the revenge aspect of the Senecan plays. Um, and so they ran with that, right? So what you see in like a play like Hamlet, for example, is that of course it's a revenge tragedy. Um, and it exposes the idea of the ghost. So making the ghost visible, um, you know, is a, is a central aspect of the Senecan form, which then Shakespeare takes over. Um, Seneca wrote at least eight tragedies, most of them adaptations of weak materials, such as the story of Oedipus, Hippolytus, and Agamemnon, but with little of the tragic feeling for character and theme. The emphasis, again, is on sensation and rhetoric, tending toward melodrama, i use that word for a second, but of course it goes back to uh, goat song, right? So melodrama, song, drama, goat song, if you invert that, um, you'll start to see the roots of melodrama in tragedy, right? And they're linked, um, although the, the effects are different. Um, right. So I'll just mention that for a second because I feel like um, we can cover other things a little bit next just to give you some grounding, which I'm sure you have already, but um, it's good to reiterate uh, some things around the tragic form. Um, going back to the Greeks for a second, um, 
by all by all accounts in terms of scholars, tragedy begins in ancient Greece, tragedy as we know it as a form of drama. The first great tragedies were staged in the city of Dionysus, and thousands of, of people uh, would gather in an amphitheater to watch, usually a trilogy of plays followed by a satyr play. And a satyr play would be uh, satire, right? That's where we get the word satire. It comes from satyr play, S-A-T-Y-R, um, where it would mock it would use some of the same structures, but mock. Um, they would be comic, right? So you'd have three tragedies in a row, and then a satyr play, you would laugh, and you would go home, right? <laughs> That's sort of the, the, the idea of the festival at Dionysus would happen that way, and the city of Dionysia, when people would gather. Um, it's important to note that no women were allowed um, to, to go to the theater. Um, so there's an audience full of men, um, and a stage full of men, right? So women were not allowed to perform either. So, oh, I think, you know, when we have this illusion of everybody went to the theater in Greece and, uh, you know, it's actually just the men went because <laughs> um, a woman couldn't go. Uh, so, so, you know, that, that changes that our, our idea of how democratic uh, the system was because it wasn't. Um, but I also sort of go back to something that's, I think, crucial here. Going to the theater in ancient Greece was, socially speaking, closer to attending a football match than a modern-day theater. So it was like going to a sport event. Um, the audiences were, you know, it was large, large theaters. Actors wore masks, which symbolized their particular character, so that even somebody sitting in the back could know who they were playing. In Latin, the word for this mask was persona. Right, which to this day we talk about adopting a persona, whatever we become someone else. We are putting on a mask, right? The persona mask for the character. Um, this is also the reason why the list of characters in these tragedies are known as dramatis personae, right? Dramatis persona, um, in plural, is because it's linked to the idea of the masks. These are the number of masks. These are the cast of masks that are in the play. I think it's a very useful way of thinking about tragedy and also maybe thinking about how we could think about tragedy today in terms of staging it, in terms of creating new tragedies, is to understand that the way we think about character now in a kind of, so I'm just going to use the word realism for a second, the way we think of character and realism is very different than the way character is thought of in the tragic form. In a tragic form, you're playing a mask. Um, you're inhabiting that mask to some degree, but you're really presenting it. Um, and so maybe it's closer to the idea of Brecht. Brecht's you know, famous alienation effect um, that you're presenting the character, I think is closely linked to this idea of mask. Um, the Romans, so thinking about Seneca for a second, of course the people that were influenced by Seneca, the Romans were the first civilization to allow women to act in tragic plays and in theater. So we don't owe the women on stage to the Greek, ancient Greece, but we owe it to the Romans. Uh, of course, on the English stage, if we're just looking at English language work, women were not allowed until after the Restoration in 1660. But useful to know that the Romans got there first. So if you're thinking about when a theater began for women, 
terms of being actors, it started in Italy uh, and in the city of Rome. In Roman plays, the color of characters' robes would often signify their role. So a yellow robe signified usually a woman, a purple robe was a young man, a white robe was an old man, and so on. Audience understood these uh, signifiers. So when a yellow robe happened on stage, they knew, oh, that's the woman role. When a purple robe happened on stage, oh, that's the young man. When a white robe, oh, that's the old man. Uh, Again, you know, we'll, uh, in thinking about Lee Brewer's staging, I'm just going to mention this for a second, Lee Brewer's uh, gospel staging of uh, the Gospel of Colonus, so, which is uh, his version of, of Oedipus of Colonus. Um, this idea of bringing back the robed, the robed chorus and the robed characters uh, is not... Uh, uh, fanciful or, or kind of convenient idea. It's actually rooted um, in the way uh, the plays were done in Roman times when you look at the Roman theater and Roman tragedies. So, so what I'm saying is that we're kind of looking at different strands historically. We're looking at Greek, Roman, Elizabethan, and many others. However, in terms of what's uh, come forward, uh, come across through time, people often think of the Roman comedies by Plautus and Terence instead of the tragedies. But uh, useful to know that the Roman tragedies are equally important and actually influenced uh, their Elizabethan plays uh, much more. Again, just looking at this sort of space of history, and again, there are many, other, many, many others. Um, the city of Dionysia in Greece um, grew out of fertility festivals where the plays would be performed. So I'm going to go back. So the goat would be ritually sacrificed to the god of wine, fertility, and crops. Um, Dionysus. Dionysus, the idea was that the sacrificial goat would rid the city of its sins. Uh, this is really important because it goes back to the idea of purging and catharsis in plays that are tragic. The, the purging aspect is linked to the idea of slaughtering the goat and ridding the city of its sins. The slaughtering of the animal symbolizes how the city will be, you know, blood will be let in order for healing to take place. So a purging has to happen before healing will take place. Um, and this is a, a concept that's still with us today in terms of how we think about the tragic form and drama. Um, uh, you know, I know we're, you know, I'm, I'm going to sort of pause here for a second to say that the writer that I think, I mean, there are many writers, uh, obviously, but one of the writers that I think is, was more uh, closely attuned to the source of tragedy from a contemporary perspective uh, is Sarah Kane. Um, so famous writer, obviously, uh, died tragically young. Uh, but in Kane's work, uh, very consciously, uh, she, she was not a, if you study her work, which I've done a great deal of, she was not someone that, I'll, I'll say this a little bit differently, sorry for stopping my sentence, but to say she was not someone that wrote instinctively. Um, she did to a certain degree once she got writing, but the work came out of a very conscious 
formal uh, challenge. And, and her interest in creating tragedies for the contemporary age, linking them to the way tragedies were structured and performed, performed perhaps, as we know from scholarship, from Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, is central to thinking about how Keynes' work works. Um, her work also is interested in purging, sometimes quite visibly, right on stage, purging the space, breaking through the space, interested deeply in sacrifice, interested deeply in um, moral reckoning with her characters and with the city-states that they live in. Um, and that purging and that catharsis becomes a way of perhaps purging the larger society of course, this is wishful, but purging the larger society, coming out of the play and thinking, life will change, I will take action after seeing this play, I understand my society better, etc. Um, Susan Laurie Parks does this as well in some of her work, not all of it, um, but if you look at a play like In the Blood um, and her play Fucking A, those two, the Scarlet Letter plays specifically, uh, she does this as well in those plays. She's writing the contemporary tragedies using some of the same devices, if not the, if not, obviously not the same language, but the, some of the same devices and uh, sources and ideas around focusing on the, something that's sacrificed inside of the play uh, that then becomes the space of purging and cleansing. So the idea of cleansing comes from that. Um, I'll expand on, upon this a little bit, just to reiterate, tragedy is designed to have some sort of purging effect on the community. Um, and again, because it is a goat song. So we're singing the song of the goat that's being sacrificed. And through that singing, which is the drama, through the singing of the drama, society may be healed or maybe begin a process of healing. Usually I would say it's this, begin a process of healing rather than the play itself being a healing space. What I will say is that in, in the Greek amphitheaters, uh, which is something that I think, I'm not sure how recent this um, scholarship is, but in the, but I'll mention it now. Um, uh, in the Greek amphitheaters, in the ancient Greece, there were hospitals near the theater. And it is said, so this is the story that scholars tell, it is said that people would leave their hospital windows open and they could hear the plays from the amphitheater because they were that close. So the, the play could be heard throughout, you know, I'm gonna use the image here, throughout the valley, right? So. The play is resonating throughout the valley. It's heard in the healing space next door, which is the hospital. And, he, and hearing, hearing the play, so being an audience, hearing the play, becomes an act of healing for the people in the hospital next door. This is a theory that some scholars have about why there were a lot of hospitals next to amphitheaters um, in ancient Greece. It is something that I think stays with us when we think about what is the function of theater. Um, 
And what is its space for and of healing? How is it connected to healing spaces? Uh, and how can it be a healing space? And of course, a healing space that examines trouble, right? Um, tragedy is not the earliest of literary genres, nor is comedy. Uh, but actually the satyr play, S-A-T-Y-R, which has come down to us as satire, the satyr play is actually the first of all literary genres. From the satyr play, we get comedy and tragedy. <clears throat> so this is interesting because I think that the satyr play gets short shrift historically. So what are the satyr plays? The satyr plays are body satires or burlesques which features actors sporting strap-on penises, the phallus being a popular symbol of fertility and virility, linked with Dionysus. Um, only one satyr play survives in its entirety, and that's the one written by Euripides, and the play is called The Cyclops, and it centers on an incident from the story of Odysseus, when the Greek hero found himself a prisoner in the cave of uh, Polymephemus, the one-eyed monster. Um, so, from the satire, from the satyr play, comedy and tragedy emerge. So from these burlesque, almost sketches, even though they were, by all intents and purposes, full-length plays, we suddenly get these other two forms that branch out from them, kind of as like two arms, the two arms of the satyr play. And I think it's interesting to think about how burlesque the body burlesque is, in, is kind of like the shadow of both tragedy and comedy. Because I think burlesque um, as a form uh, often gets, again, kind of marginalized and put to the side, but it's actually the oldest form and the most central. And from there you get sort of all the others. Um, tragedy and comedy become roots but they only become roots because of uh, the satyr play. Um, and again, this is linked to the fertility festival. So out of kind of a collective, communal, uh, you know, joyous, uh, funny, body, sexy, very sexual, right? Uh, fertility, right, basically, you get theater. Um, and I think it's it's good to bear this in mind because I think it's often forgotten and I think it's also something that when we think, I guess when we think about tragedy today uh, uh, it gets a little bit um, there's an emphasis I think on the weight of tragedy which it does have uh, but that the shadow of that weight is also something very um, rooted in a kind of visceral, immediate, communal, and sometimes um, social, political, uh, satirizing community customs or community figures, etc. So here we go to Oedipus, um, which, you know, uh, is the most celebrated tragedies of ancient Greece by Sophocles. We know the story. Sophocles wrote this play. It's about a Theban king who kills his father, even though he doesn't know it, and marries his mother, even though he doesn't know it. Um, and, you know, is a tyrannical ruler. So the 
<clears throat> the original title of the Oedipus play is Oedipus Tyrannus. So Oedipus Rex meaning king, but Oedipus Tyrannus, the, the tyrant, Oedipus the tyrant is actually a closer um, translation of how the word king is thought of. Really important to know that Oedipus is a tyrannical figure. And it's actually his tyranny, his, his embrace of power, his kind of almost autocratic rule that then leads to his downfall, right? That starts to kind of spiral into the downfall and then to meeting the oracle and then discovering again what their, what their, um, they didn't know about their, who they are, right? Uh, in terms of genre, so tragedy requires a tragic hero, usually male, at least historically, not true anymore, <laughs> thank heaven. Uh, one that is usually tempted to perform a deed, frequently a murder, uh, after which the hero's fortunes eventually suffer a decline, ending with their death, right? In the case of Antigone, which I think is a, one of the you know big tragedies, right? So in the Greek pantheon. So there's always been discussion as to whether is Antigone a tragic hero or not, right? What is Antigone, if we're going to look at this template, what is Antigone tempted to perform? Um, you know, what is this deed that sort of tempts them? What's the decline that they suffer that ends with their death? So you could argue that in Antigone's case, her desire to defend her brother, right, to have his body buried, even though he committed treason against the state, her pursuit of that desire and her, and her perhaps even attempt to, as she does in the play, if we look at different versions of Antigone, where she actually tries to bury him or, or tries to dig a hole, in a sense, and is caught, right? by authorities, uh, transgressing, that her act of transgression leads to her decline and then ends with her being put to death. Um, arguable, right? It's not a, tra is it a tragic flaw <laughs> um, that this happens or is it, is the tragic flaw in the state, in the city state, which I think is closer to the truth. I think an Antigone Creon is a tragic hero and Antigone isn't. But scholars are still debating this, and that's why Antigone is an amazing play. Um, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit uh, to look at Ibsen for a second, because um, even under the rubric of realism, we have tragic uh, heroines and heroes, and one of them is Hedda Gobbler. Had a uh, often called the female Hamlet, um, uh, a character that's uncomfortable with her station, with uh, possibly with her gender, um, and who is haunted by the ghost of her father. So, in this sense, very close to Hamlet. Um, and who knows? You know, there are scholars that suggest that maybe Ibsen was wanting to write a version of Hamlet with a woman at the center. Uh, and here you have like a female tragic heroine. 
if you go to the 1940s, just skipping around here to different kind of periods um, and people, uh, Arthur Miller, a U.S. playwright, wrote a very famous essay called Tragedy and the Common Man, uh, an essay in which he justified the concept of having an ordinary person as a center of character of a tragic play. Now, this was something of a revolution because usually tragic heroes in the past had been except, you know, what one might call people of a high station, princes, kings, presidents, you know, people in power, even Hedda Gobbler, she's from the upper class, right? So Miller's decision to put a salesman at the center of death of a salesman uh, from a historical perspective would seem to be inappropriate as a subject for tragedy. And, and believe it or not, in 1949, if we are to believe history and what scholars say about it, um, people just went crazy. They were like, what do you mean having a common man at the center of play? Um, so Arthur Miller wrote a defense of Death of a Salesman called Tragedy and the Common Man and justified his reason for putting Willie Loman at the center of his story and making it a tragic play. Um, I, you know... I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to be in a, perhaps a society where people would still get angry about a play. <laughs> um, I think that doesn't, hasn't happened, at least in the U.S., since uh, Jeremy O'Hara's slave play, but that play functions in a different manner. Um, but can you imagine, like, a whole society being like, oh, my gosh, you mean you have a, an ordinary person at the center of a tragedy? You can't do this? Oh, my gosh. Anyway, uh, we have moved on. Thank Kevin, since 1949. Um, but useful to know that in the history of tragedy, the idea was that you would be looking at figures of authority or upper class, figures in the upper class, and that the audience was sort of looking, not because they were more important, but mostly because they're at the center of power. So that the idea that drama is about, to some degree, according to the ancient tragedians and as you move forward throughout history, including Shakespeare, the idea being that tragedies are about focus on uh, the structures of power and who's a, who are in those structures, who are inhabiting them, and how is the tragedy enacted, right? On the, on the quote, the rest of the people. So in, in the Greek plays, the ancient Greek plays, the chorus, and again, one can argue this, but the chorus, I think, sort of stands in for the community or the town. So the, the chorus is kind of like the ordinary people. <laughs> and the play focuses on the people who hold the power. Uh, and the chorus is sort of in response to that. I think in Gospel of Colonus, what you see is like a very compelling iteration of that idea with the use of the chorus. Lee Brewer staging Gospel of Colonus. Um, So I'm going to fast forward here to some other, oh, heaven's ideas and things around tragedy definitions and so forth. Um, uh, terrible events, tragedies. <laughs> um, uh, 
I think it's useful. I'll sort of look at my notes. So, so something about Dionysus and how Trigides were first done, according to, to history, is that the atmosphere surrounding the performances were more like a religious ceremony rather than entertainment. Uh, so this idea that you were attending a sacred a sacred kind of event, going to church, right? So going to theater was both going to a sporting event and going to church, which, you know, that's not so true now. <laughs> the idea that these two things could be combined. In fact, Sarah Kane talks about, somebody asked her about Blasted, you know, when it first came out and people were, you know, up in arms about it. Um, and she said, I want, I want my audiences, I want the audiences that go to the soccer match to come to the theater. Is actually when she said that was was linking the idea of the of seeing a tragedy back to the idea of going to see it as if it were a sporting event, kind of on the edge of a seat, really visceral, really kind of you know right in front of you, uh, primal, primal, a kind of primal investigation of structures of power. Um, there were often altars to the gods in the city of Dionysus. Priests were in attendance. Uh, not priests like we know them now, but priests, uh, uh, Greek Orthodox. And then the subjects of tra tragedies were usually the misfortune of heroes, legend, myth, or history. And most of the material was derived from the works of Homer, which people in Greece sort of knew Homer's work. So <clears throat> in a sense, it was like taking stories people knew, like we would take stories from the headlines today to put them on stage. It was a way of kind of bringing an audience in, they would sort of know the story ahead of time in a way. And then what they were seeing was Aeschylus, Sophocles, or Euripides, their interpretations of those stories. And we mention Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides because the only extant plays we have are from these three writers. So, um, yeah, I wish, I wish we had more, but there you have it. Um, so you have a couple of locales where the time periods where tragedy kind of manifests. You have it in Attica in Greece, Attica and Dionysus in the fifth century. You have it in the Elizabethan era uh, in the reign of Elizabeth I and James I from 1558 to 1625. You have it in 17th century France. And then in Europe and America, during the second half of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th. So Europe and America come late to tragedy uh, compared to ancient Greece, England, and France. Each period sees a different development around the tragic form. Um, in the modern period, which we can call roughly from the middle of the 19th century, the idea of tragedy uh, found its embodiment in the novel. Uh, and it, the tragedy gets developed as a literary genre, which it hadn't been before, right? Instead of dramatic literature, it was a literary. And this, this is, becomes a shift in thinking about tragedy. Um, So I'm going over my nose, sorry for the pause. 
Uh, oh yeah, I think this is worth saying. I should look at my notes. So, in thinking about the tragic form, the questions these are plays that are not only purging and and kind of trying to heal society in some way, or, or trying to raise those questions around healing, but they also ask central questions. So, the central questions are: Why must humans suffer? That question is still true today, right? When people write tragedies, why must humans suffer? Why must humans be forever torn between the seeming irreconcilable forces of good and evil, freedom and necessity, truth and deceit? Are the causes of suffering outside of oneself, in the evil designs of others, or in the malice of the gods? Are the causes internal, or does one bring suffering upon oneself through arrogance, infatuation, or the tendency to overreach. Moreover, big question that tragedies asks is why is justice so elusive? Right? I'm going to go over these questions again because I think they're really key in thinking about the tragic form. Why must humans suffer? Why must humans be forever torn between the irreconcilable forces of good and evil, freedom and necessity, truth and deceit? Are the causes of suffering outside of oneself, in the evil designs of others, or in the malice of the gods? Are the causes internal, or are the causes are that you bring suffering upon yourself through arrogance, infatuation, etc.? So sometimes called the tragic flaw. And why is justice so elusive? Right? That's the haunting question underneath tragedy. Why is justice so elusive? Why can't we get justice in this world, right? Historically, we know about movements of social justice. Why do we keep making the same mistakes? Why can't justice be achieved? What is it about the human condition? Certainly not a condition, but I think human systems that have been created that disallow justice, right? And then you look at sort of answers for that, but then you also look at things that are not answerable, right? If you look at the course of history, you think a lot of the questions around justice should have been resolved by now, and yet the same systems kind of keep perpetuating. Most of them linked to colonialism and settler colonialism, but you also look at colonialism in different ways, right? It's not just originary uh, origin, so the originary, I don't think that's a word, but origin colonialism, which I mean, by which I mean kind of European, uh, Europeans uh, colonizing uh, what sometimes is called third world, right? Uh, uh, in colonial terms. First world to third world, right? Uh, that's one version of the tragic, right? The tragic condition that's enforced upon third world countries um, by first, quote, first world countries. Uh, which is tied to settler colonialism and white supremacy. But then you look at where you see tragedy enacted inside of countries where colonial systems are perpetuated by people of color against people of color, against black and people of color, right? So if you look at the Congo, if you look at Yemen, if you look at Syria, you start to see basically systems of colonialism 
So one against the other. So Syrian colonialists against their own people enacting colonialism, usually around uh, notions of religion, sect, caste, sometimes station. Uh, yeah, so I think it's parsing and making the, the question around colonialism more nuanced starts to be helpful in looking at questions like why is justice so elusive? The fact that there are systems that perpetuate. Uh, I mean, look at the in China right now, the situation with the Uyghurs, right? So I think that people that are being forced into servitude and a kind of basically a kind of uh, uh, no rights, right? They have no rights. Um, uh, colonized. They're being colonized by the Chinese um, uh, government. Uh, they're enacting a kind of apartheid against the Uyghurs, right? So this happened also in the Balkan War, a uh, kind of apartheid between the Serbs and the Muslims. So we see kind of patterns of colonialism repeat. I know there's a slight sidebar in the conversation around tragedy, but I think it's linked to the conversation of looking at systems of power, which a tragedy tends to do. Um, and then you could argue, and just for a moment, because I mentioned death of a salesman, argue what are the systems of power that Miller is looking at in that play. You know, that play is often seen as a personal tragedy. Willie is kind of weak and confused and is suffering. You know, he has a mental breakdown. We're looking at his mental breakdown. Why is, it, how is that, why is that mental breakdown in place? It's in place because he's inside a system. Right? He's inside a system of corruption, power, and greed. In this case, capitalism. That is extracting his very soul. Right? That's sort of the power of death of a salesman. Right? Uh, regardless of whether you like Miller or not, uh, as a writer... The heart of the play, that's what that play is talking about. The sales the salesman character is disposable, is, is being extracted. His body, so that would be the question now of like people being treated like data, people being treated like products by extractive systems that are capitalizing upon them and colonizing them. Um, so I just think worth thinking about, right? I think in Sarah Kane's work, a little more difficult because I think that she's looking at often at well she's looking at extraction as well interestingly sometimes quite uh, symbolically <laughs> in terms of what we see on stage um, power that strips po systems of power that strip people of their ability to love, of their rights, of their ability to forge a human connection with somebody else. You know, that's a lot of the work of Karen is talking about that. Um, and I think sometimes that tends to be forgotten uh, in her work. Edward Bond, who is a precursor of Cain, uh, also dealt with very same issues and often deals with the same issues in his work, and he's still writing today. Uh, I'm going to jump a little bit here because, you know, we're at 47 minutes and I don't want to talk your ear off <laughs> in terms of tragedy. I could go on about tragedy for days and days and days. I, it is a form that I'm very, very fond of. Uh, 
I think maybe because I read the book, I very early in sort of my kind of writing life, and uh, that play just kind of mesmerized me. That play is astonishing. Uh, and uh, I was like, how do you do this play? <laughs> I've never seen a production of the Bacchae. I'm dying to see it. Uh, I hope one day I get to see a proper production of it. And I mean, proper, like, one that really releases the wildness of that play. Uh, it's a ferocious piece of theater on the page, uh, even in translation. Maybe I'll look at my notes here. Um, yeah, we have Euripides, whom I love. Um, more Greeks. Uh, ba -ba -ba, the Romans, melodrama. Right. Catholics, Elizabethans. Many notes. Sorry, thanks for being patient while I scroll through my notes uh, endlessly. Um... Yeah, maybe maybe I'll pause there for just a second. Let me let me look at my notes for just a second. Hold on. Okay, thanks for being patient. Yeah, I was looking at my notes. I uh, I think that's it. You know, I'm obviously I could write a whole book about this and and probably will someday. Um, I've I've actually written a lot about tragedy and, uh, as a as a way of kind of thinking about specifically the tragic impulse. Uh, and writing, uh, and where it comes from, and in how you know there's a there's a terrific play from the ancient Greek period called the Persians, uh, which debatable. We think we think it was the first performed tragedy after the after the satyr plays were done, um, and so one of the oldest extant tragedy is the Persians, and that play is fascinating because it's not about the victors, right? So it's about the people that were conquered. And it's a play that is showing its audience who would have been the victors, would have been like an audience full of Greek uh, army, basically, people who had been in the army, veterans of war. So it looked an audience of veterans of war who thought we've won this war against the Persians, um, as the play is called. Um, and then they're looking at a play, tragedy about what they did to them, right? So it's looking at, it's kind of pointing a finger at the idea of victory and who are, whose lives are you running over when that happens? Persians is a tr tremendous play um, because it presents a moral argument uh, to its audience. It says, aha, you want to celebrate and have a parade about you won? Well, what about the people that, you know, you, whose lives you destroyed? Um, and then it, it kind of deals with that. It deals with that dilemma. Um, and I think that a lot of tragedies have this at their root somehow. So I'm going to circle back to the Death of a Salesman for a second, only because I've mentioned it, and it's uh, it's a play with clean lines, the way it's written. Skeletal, right? It's sort of skeletal, that play. Uh, and the skeleton of that play is, uh, to a great degree, if we're looking at it from, you know, sort of one person's journey, 
and their tragedy and the family's tragedy in that play um, is looking at he is not the victor. He is the conquered, right? He is the extracted person, the disposable person that's put at the center of the story. And perhaps, and I'm not reading Arthur Miller's mind, but perhaps there's an assumption by Miller that the audience going to see Death of a Salesman might be, to quote the victors, the ones who uh, gave, you know, who ran, who run the company where Willie Loman works, or, you know what I mean? I think that there's a, there's a dialectic at work in Miller's play where he's possibly, this is just conjecture of mine, but possibly positioning the story both for the extract, the people who feel that they've been extracted by systems to see themselves in Willie's story, and also for the power brokers and the power holders to see what they're doing to people when they treat them like disposable object. So, so I'll, I'll leave you with that. On that cheery note, I'll leave you. Um, but also because I think that that is one of the central engines, one of the central, not the only one, but one of the central engines of writing tragedy, um, staging tragedy, examining it, and thinking about it, um, especially now through a contemporary lens. Um, one thing I'll say about tragedy, just to sort of end the lecture, is to, in terms of tone, um, I mean, I'm not saying that tragedies don't have any humor in them, you know, and that's not true. Um, there's a kind of, every, every play hopefully has elements of light and dark, uh, levity and, and weight. Um, but tragedies tend, for the most part, to be relentless and inexorable. And the relentlessness has to do with uh, that things are happening almost out of, I'm going to say out of control, but that's the way they feel. So that it's that it's almost out of the grasp of the characters. That they're just rolling along and the tragedy sort of occurring, and we're caught in it. Uh, one of the things that I love about the ancient Greek plays that we have extant um, is that they're lean and mean plays. Most of them run about ninety minutes. Some of them an hour. They pack like the whole world in them in that time frame. So this idea that plays, the proper plays, you know, quotation marks should be like two or three hours, five hours, five hours long, was not a thing in ancient Greece. You know, I mean, think about it. They were doing a trilogy of plays at the festival. So each of them were about like an hour, um, maybe 90, maybe 80 minutes to 90 minutes. So the plays have this kind of ferocity of vision. They just go. And there's kind of no wasted gestures in those plays. Um, even a play like the Bacchae, which is very exuberant and kind of decadent, to use Paula Vogel's term, you know, they're kind of decadent in the sense that we've gone past the stages of 
understanding what a tragedy is and now going to a place where everybody knows sort of what the tragic form is and Euripides gets to sort of play, right? And kind of tear it apart a little bit. Um, but yeah, the uh, there's a just a ferocious drive. They just move like lightning and they don't have an intermission. Uh, that's the other thing about those ancient Greek plays is that they're, they're festival rites. So they just move, boom, and go. No interval. They just straight through the ending. Um, and that's, I think, something that's true of, of tragedies as a form of drama. That there is, a, at its heart, there's a kind of very lean, mean, we're going after it, and we're not going to stop until we get to the end of the play, and it's just going to move like lightning. And it's going to feel like there's a there's something moving it, moving it, like there's a force that should have moving it forward. Um, very different from comedy, which tends to be more loose and kind of free-flowing and full of detours, and tragedies tend to have like a straight line, kind of we're going for it and we're going to get to the end. Um, and again, of course, there are always exceptions to all of this. So I'm just thinking about things that, that stay with us, right, with these forms. Um, as we examine them, as you're in them, as actors, as theater makers, as thinkers, people thinking about form, and thinking maybe about making your own, uh, and what the role of these forms are uh, historically. So that's, those are some thoughts on tragedy.